But most clinicians who are treating this know very little about what is going on in the brain of somebody with ADHD. And on a neuroscience level, we still don't have a real understanding of what's going on to cause those struggles. We're Lane and Sharis, two certified clinicians who are obsessed with neuroscience and learning all the secrets behind the power of our brains. This podcast is focused on using science to understand the parts of us that are unknown but impact us every day. Our brains affect the way we think, feel, act, and even understand the world. But what we don't realize is that so much of it is happening on autopilot. By learning more about how our brains work, we can use that knowledge to regain control of our minds and become happier, healthier people while positively impacting others. This is the Brain Blown Podcast. On the podcast today, we're talking about ADHD. And it got me thinking about how short our attention spans just as humans has become over the years. Maybe it's from the mindless scrolling of videos that seem to be endless and are constantly giving us dopamine hits, but it makes boredom feel almost unbearable, and it leaves our minds feeling like they're constantly all over the place. It's feeling like these that makes me think about why so many of us might believe their ADHD symptoms, and after looking into it, it might explain why there are so many diagnoses of ADHD. So, Lane, let's talk about it. What in the world is ADHD, and what do we know about it? ADHD is Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. And according to the CDC, to quote them, it is one of the most common neurodevelopmental disorders of childhood. So to give you a little bit of numbers, they're stating estimated number of children, 3 to 17, Ever diagnosed with ADHD, to quote, according to a national survey of parents, is 6 million. That's 9.8%. And this is using data actually pre-pandemic. We don't have updated data. That was 2016 to 2019. Very interesting to see what the numbers look like post-pandemic. And we see the percentage rating of 3 to 5 years of age is about 2%. 6 to 11 is 10%. And 12 to 17 is 13%. We see that boys are more likely to be diagnosed with ADHD than girls at a rate of 13% to 6%. And black non-Hispanic children and white non-Hispanic children are often more diagnosed with ADHD than Hispanic children or Asian children at a pretty significant rate, 12% for black children to 3% of Asian children. The National Institute of Health also states that 4.4% of adults have ADHD, with significantly higher numbers, 5.4 versus 3.2, found in males and white individuals. That's really interesting, actually, to think about, because when I first heard you say those percentages, they didn't seem as big as what I imagined they would be, maybe just from the popularity of ADHD. I don't know if I'm alone in this, maybe it's just my social media algorithms pointing me towards so much ADHD even on the internet, unironically, but it didn't seem as big of a number as it could be. But considering 9% of kids are clinically diagnosed with it, 
not just the colloquial experience, the clinical diagnosis. Well, especially when you figure we were covering depression and saying depression is the most common mental illness, and that's 8%. So in a way, this is even more. Yes. I mean, the difference there is, of course, we're talking about 8% of all individuals versus 9% of children. Right. Yes. And to be fair, we also said that 15% of youth are more likely to be diagnosed with depression. We do focus, rightfully so, a little bit more attention on children because we've got so many more eyes on them with school and whatnot, which is great. We've definitely done a huge improvement there. But yes, what we're seeing is that's almost as high as depression, which is the most common. Wow. For ADHD? Yeah. Like that's surprising to me that, that it's that high. It was to me too. Absolutely. And now that I bring that up as well, could we touch a little bit on just the clinical versus colloquial experience? Absolutely. Since we've been doing that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you've been hitting a little bit on the colloquial experience of it already, but I went a lot to like synonyms of ADHD and thinking in terms of like hyperactive, short attention span. But we've also, outside of just synonyms, we've almost turned this into slang in community of like talking about being easily distracted all yes. over the place. People who don't have that diagnosis will be like, oh, it's just my ADHD, right? Yes. Because we're using that instead of some other way of saying, I'm just struggling with my attention. I'm just struggling with my focus, right? Like it's a meme of, oh, I have ADHD. Oh, look, squirrel, right? Like <laughs> Squirrel brain, <laughs> we, yes. Yeah, we've literally turned it into a, a meme because we're using it so common and so often, colloquially as opposed to clinically. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really great point. So clinically, when we look at this, what we see is patterns of inattention or hyperactivity slash impulsivity, and that interferes with function or development as characterized by inattention, and you must have at least six or more symptoms of inattention to meet that criteria, and hyperactivity and impulsivity with six or more symptoms there. And that's within ADHD that we'll see different types of ADHD. So not only will there be a diagnosis, but it will say something like inattentive type for example, because we're seeing more there in inattention and maybe not the hyperactivity. And right. That would explain if it's like ADD versus ADHD. Kind of and kind of not. So ADD is actually no longer used clinically. ADD is what we were using in the last version of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manuals of Mental Disorders. Mm. And we have now changed it to ADHD looking at the different subtypes. Gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. So yes, now with ADHD, we're looking at combined type or predominantly a specific type, for example. And within this, they have to be present for at least six months and need to be inconsistent with developmental levels. So whatever we're expecting to see for children, we're not seeing here, right? Right. We need to think about what is developmentally appropriate versus developmentally inappropriate. And, of course, we need to see that this is causing clinically significant distress. Mm-hmm. And we must see this before age 12 and must be present in more than two settings. So wow. You, so we'll see it in school. Yep. Parents will see it at home. But they have to prove it beyond those two places. Yes. Wow. Because we need to show that this isn't just, I don't like school and I don't want to do my homework. Yeah. This isn't just the natural child squirrel brain. Yes. The the developing brain, if you will. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. And so we need to see that this is not just I don't like X thing, but like a struggle across the board. This is really common for any clinical work that we're doing for things that are also developmentally 
not in line is we have to see that developmentally inconsistent. We need to see it across multiple areas. Gotcha. It's also one of the most overdiagnosed diagnoses we have. Overdiagnosed? Yes. And this is without question. According to the Global Health Review, Psych Central, Cleveland Clinic, National Institute of Health, it is one of the most commonly misdiagnosed disorders worldwide. We have study after study after study to prove this. ADHD symptoms overlap with so many other conditions. Inattentive, irritable, trouble sleeping, poor working memory, not listening, not focusing, easily distracted. Those are found all over the DSM. What in in the world? In hundreds of diagnoses, right? Wow. And yet we keep gravitating towards ADHD, even though the science is struggling to back it up. So this is the neuroscience of ADHD. That is unbelievable to think about. Because number one, explain it explains why there's such a high diagnosis, like why there's such a high percentage. But that is crazy to think that instead of, I'm making this assumption, but it seems like instead of diving into the symptoms and finding more of their source, we're just seeing those symptoms and assuming it's ADHD because it is so common. It's almost like this never-ending circle mm-hmm. that needs to be broken because it's no longer as accurate as, as it should be. As it should be. And we saw a major influx of ADHD diagnosis in the 80s and early 90s. This became incredibly prevalent and so many kids were put on medication. Yeah. There is a lot of question as we have sort of shifted children's education and our focus on standardized testing and structured classrooms, if we are trying to fit children into an adult model where we are expecting things that are not as developmentally appropriate, that can be very hard for most children. And what we saw, especially before we started to monitor this a lot more and we started to be more critical of this, was kids who were over-medicated. And over-medicated children are easier to manage. Because it turns children into zombies who sit quietly in a corner. Yeah. Like and sloths. for a teacher who's got 35 or 40 kids, as opposed to having kids who are running around like crazy, it's no wonder we went to this. Mm. I will also say in the early 80s, we didn't know anything. We were in the very beginning of learning about childhood trauma. Right. And the other things that affect children's brains. So... We are learning a great deal more now that we do need to be critical. And I'm not saying that this isn't in existence at all, and we'll get into that. But more that this is going to be an interesting topic to dive deep into. Very much so. And actually, as you bring it up as well, uh, let's do just that and look back sort of at the history of ADHD. Maybe if we know where it like first came about thinking of our friend caveman joe of course wondering if it goes back that far at all but also if you have any other specific terms that we should be aware of around adhd sure anything like that sure i will say we do not go back to caveman times on this one we don't even go back like with depression and anxiety where we were seeing this in bc oh right right. um with hippocrates 
There are descriptions of children being easily distracted and having trouble focusing as far back as 1798 and 1902 specifically, but this does not actually mean ADHD. It was in 1932, Fran Kramer and Hans Polnow from Germany identified children who had trouble sitting still, were dysregulated and focusing, and they called it hyperkinetic disease. But most of these children got better as they got older. For something neurological, outgrowing it means it's questionable if that's actually a disease. If, yeah, if there was even something wrong. Exactly. In 1937, Charles Bradley noticed a stimulant that caused some children to improve in schoolwork and regulation, but a diagnosis still did not happen until 1968 in the second edition of the DSM. We are currently in the fifth one. And that was called hyperkinetic reaction of childhood. Right? Reaction of childhood is a Reaction of childhood. Very odd term. Also kind of just sounds like it's a kid being a kid, but... (laughs) But a kid maybe not exactly behaving how a parent would like them to. Oh, right. Yep. 1980 (laughs) is when we called it ADD, or Attention Deficit Disorder. ADHD did not exist until 1987. Wow, that's really recent. Holy... Yes. Wow, that's just 30-somewhat years ago? ADD came out and everybody had it. Yeah, oh my gosh. In 1980. Yeah, you said it exploded in the 80s and 90s. Wow. Because we had this diagnosis and we thought all children fit under it. This is going to be... Probably one of our most interesting topics to look at from a neuroscience perspective, I feel like, because everything that is ADHD is the brain. So in considering it also compared to what we know from the DSM, what we know just societally speaking about ADHD, what do you believe is most important for why we're looking at it through neuroscience? One of the important things about looking at this through neuroscience is your point. This is what we're saying is that this is absolutely a reworking of the brain. We're now putting it under the umbrella of neurotypical versus non-neurotypical. And to say that something is specifically a misalignment of how the brain is developed means we should have some understanding of what's going on in the brain to cause this. Right, yeah. So why neuroscience? I Maybe that. But also, to quote the meta-analysis of 55 fMRI studies of neuroscience of ADHD, ADHD pathophysiology remains incompletely understood. 55 studies. We still don't get it. And to quote Williams saying, Clark and Cohn, they state that there is a transitional gap between the neuroscience knowledge and our knowledge in clinical practice. So what we know in science versus what we're seeing on a person-to-person basis, there's a major gap here. Oftentimes in clinical work, we are treating this with behavior. You don't fit a typical behavior, right? And the clinical work becomes how to learn how to function in a neurotypical world. It's behavior modification. But most clinicians who are treating this know very little about what is going on in the brain of somebody with ADHD. Clinicians are focused on trying to, rightfully so, help reduce that clinically significant distress, trying to help children not fall behind in school, trying to help people feel more successful in life, which is incredibly important. But this is often done with little understanding about what's going on to cause those struggles. And on a neuroscience level, we still don't have 
a real understanding of what's going on to cause those struggles. So why neuroscience? Because we don't get it. I can only hope that we will learn more. Even just in this episode, learning more about the parts of the brain, what's actually going on. And I think before we dive into that, we'll just take a quick break. As we dive into the parts of the brain, I was thinking about how when we think about ADHD, we consider it as squirrel brain sometimes, especially for the colloquial experience of it. The meme. Yes, the meme. The meme of it. And it made me realize ADHD is kind of feels like a whole brain thing, like every single part of your brain is involved in it. But when you think of it specifically of like the thoughts that you're going that are going through your head or what sort of things pop up to distract you or something like that it seems more like we're hanging out in the prefrontal cortex the the youngest child but also for young kids who are most commonly diagnosed with ADHD their prefrontal cortex is still in development absolutely very so, much so to sum it up what the heck is going on in our brain? We don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, that explains... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, well, you know, that kind of explains the chaos of what we, I guess, don't know about yes. ADHD, but... Just the way that we've responded to it in Absolutely. discovering it in the 80s and suddenly it is it's, so common. Mm -hmm. So many people have it, but we don't really know what it, what it is. is. Yes. And I will say that's part of it, right? I'm, I'm saying we don't know kind of casually, but we don't know partially because really it's only been around for like 40 years and 40 years in research isn't actually all that long of a time oh not nearly as long as what we had for depression or anxiety absolutely for a lot of the things that we've been aware of right wow. this is this is still new right yeah and it's also complex there's a couple of things that are adding to this complexity so starting off with akuna understanding the pathophysiology of adhd is currently insufficient there's just not enough understanding here. To quote, equally problematic transitional promises have yet to be delivered as clinically useful biomarkers are rarely attained and notes to quote, psychiatry remains uniquely reliant upon diagnostic and classification systems derived from clusters of symptoms rather than etiology or neurobiology. So what does that mean? It means we don't have enough consistency in what we're seeing in research and and because we don't know what medical is left with is I guess I will try something and see if it works because the most important thing is patient care and I need to make sure that my patient is being successful right and yeah it's almost dare I say experimental but it also explains why we're correcting behaviors yes rather than nursing or curing the source. Yes. Which is not uncommon for mental health. Hmm. 
We are often looking at the symptoms and looking at fixing the symptoms so people fit in society rather than looking at why we have those symptoms. Hmm. And I will say even just as, as recently as a few years ago, I say a few years ago only because pre-pandemic when we were all in large groups, right. I had clinicians talking about the way you figure out if somebody has ADHD is if they respond to medication. That's yeah. an odd way to diagnose. Yeah. And not really maybe the way that we want to, which is why we're starting to do some research into this. But Slater and Tate will say, to quote, despite significant research efforts, characterization of the neurobiological basis of ADHD has proven elusive. In other words, we're doing a ton of research here and we're just not seeing the consistencies that we want to see yet. Slater and Tate are saying, even though we list this as a neurological disease, essentially we diagnose this based on a self-report questionnaire, give you medication, and see if it works. That's exactly what they're arguing is that same thing I heard a clinician say just a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. We don't understand this. We just try something and see if it sticks. And they will also state to quote, it has been difficult to identify biomarkers of this disorder because there's been no clear mapping between neural measures and clinical subtypes. Although ADHD is associated with structure and functional abnormalities, including within frontal, stradial, and cerebellar pathways, these findings have generally been small and not been replicated. So what is that saying? This is a tricky thing when we're talking about research because it's very easy to read research or worse to read the clickbait of research that often occurs and say, oh, this study is saying this. Whereas you and I, part of our training in clinical work is that we had to learn how to read research critically. Mm -hmm. How to be able to read essentially what it's not saying or why it's inconsistent or why it's potentially problematic. Right. That is a learned skill that generally only comes when you have an advanced degree. In fact, there are entire professions just geared towards being able to read research critically. And I'm not saying it's not existing, but it's not existing enough that we feel comfortable as a science saying, well, this is what's going on. Where in a lot of cases, you and I do talk about this is what's going on. Or at least we've seen enough consistent findings across the same kind of pathways that we're still saying, hey, maybe this is new, right? Which mm -hmm. ADHD also is. But we've at least seen enough to say we're, we're feeling pretty confident here. And I apologize to the listeners who are very passionate about ADHD and wanting to hear about this. But in, in ADHD neuroscience, we currently don't have that. It has just not been replicated enough and it is not, there's not been the clear mapping. And so Slater and Tate are specifically going to cite problems with Rubia's work, who we're actually going to cover in a little bit. And they're arguing is that there's not been enough consistencies to say for certain that Rubia's work is actually accurate. Does Rubia's work show potential? Sure. But we have too many inconsistencies to actually guarantee that. We see some abnormal patterns, but it's only within a subgroup of individuals who's been diagnosed with ADHD, not all of the testing participants. And they argue that that's not a reliable basis. You can't say, oh, this is the neuroscience of ADHD. This is exactly what's going on in the brain. If it's only going on in the brain of a handful of people with ADHD. Right. Absolutely. And what about all the people who are feeling all of these other ADHD symptoms? Like, are we just 
pushing those off to the side as, oh, sorry, you're not diagnosed, so we're not going to consider that. And that might be part of the problem, right, is we started this with this is the most misdiagnosed disorder we have. Right. Without question. So when you're doing research on ADHD, it's going to be really hard to find accurate research if you have a bunch of people misdiagnosed. (laughs) Oh, no, that is too true. Wow. Okay. Well, honestly, going off of that, is there anything that we maybe don't know for certain, but at least know somewhat of what's going on in the brain? They do. Slater and Tate do state that motor and timing deficits are not included within the diagnostic criteria for ADHD that, as you notice, I didn't list them as anything that comes from the DSM for what we look at. Mm -hmm. But they're actually seeing these increasingly recognized as common symptoms and have been identified for a promising for area of further study. Okay, cool. Well, at least it can be a starting off point that we're yes. looking at. Yes. Okay. So this is a complicated thing to look at. It's not been around very long, which makes the research hard. We've got it severely misdiagnosed, which makes it very hard to do research within a misdiagnosed group of people. We're seeing potential things that could be, but we are not seeing them repeated across multiple studies, and we might have the diagnostic criteria completely off. And it gets worse. So let's get into those Rubia and timing studies we mentioned. (laughs) Oh no, oh my gosh. Okay, so starting us off with the brain map, are we going to be looking at different parts of the brain for ADHD or anywhere specific? We're going to be looking at something completely new. Okay. This is why it gets worse. Rubia essentially states that ADHD is harder to look at because it's looking at a neural network. So specifically, Rubia is looking at the right and left hemispheric dorsal ventral and medial frontal singular stratiothemolic and frontal parietal cellular networks. Hey, those are new. Where the heck are those? (laughs) (laughs) So we've kind of hinted at this in this podcast, that one of the things that human beings struggle with when we're talking about neuroscience is that the brain is super complex, right? A lot of people find neuroscience fascinating, but it's very hard to understand, which is why you and I started this podcast, right? Mm -hmm. Because it was important to, it's so important to know about your brain and it's very messy to try to read. Yeah. One of the things that makes it more complicated is that there's so much more going on. And as human beings, we have a nature to want to say X is responsible for Y. You and I have been absolutely guilty of this in this podcast, right? Mm -hmm. And we've tried to leave a lot of disclaimers of we know that we're oversimplifying this. I mean, that's the nature of this podcast is we're purposely oversimplifying neuroscience. Mm -hmm. So of course we were going to do that. But we keep kind of giving that footnote, if you will, of it's also not this simple. We're giving you a general area, but how the brain actually works is not really X part does Y, but more there are multiple pieces that will work across different areas that are acting in harmony. Yes. So we have to now dive a little bit more into the complexity that is neuro. And to quote Dr. Sagruhi, there are no areas solely responsible for complex functions like language, emotion, and attention but multiple areas that are working in complex coordination, often presiding in completely different, non-adjacent parts of the brain. The manner in which they are connected is worth equal, if not more, attention, and together they form brain networks. Gotcha. 
So oh. we very much hinted actually this in our, our most recent mini episode, The Neuroscience of Motivation. It's about what parts of your brain are singing in harmony rather than belting out a solo. Right. Got it. Okay. Oh, super interesting. So hence why we're looking at the connections in the brain for yes. this episode rather than specific places like on our hand map. Yes. Or our, our hand model of the brain. And we've kind of done this a little bit with like depression and anxiety. Specifically, we've been talking about, you know, these are the areas and this is how they impact each other. That's them trying to sing together. Mm-hmm. And sometimes one of them is very off key. Right. And how it affects the whole choir. Right. And so, yes, this is specifically saying when we're looking at this, we're looking at the harmony. Gotcha. So what's hypothesized a lot for ADHD is that it's harder to understand because it's harder to look at harmony. Mm. It, by nature, is more complex to try to look at four or five pieces working together than one thing that's firing. Yeah. So that being said, what they are looking at within these brain networks is dorsal ventral and mediofrontal singular stratiothemolic and frontal parietal cellular networks. Okay, that's what we talked about. Mm-hmm. What those are are generally focused on helping with thought control, attention, timing, and what we call your working memory. Dorsal ventral is very much attention processing. Specifically in a study, we saw reduced activation in this area for people diagnosed with ADHD. Key part of ADHD is attention processing. That makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. Medial frontal singular stratiothemolic is focused on movement execution, habit forming, and rewards, which ties into what we sort of think of with ADHD, right? That ability to sit still and be rewarded. Yes. And to do the dishes and to do your homework and to turn in your homework, mm. right? A common thing with kids with ADHD is they will do the homework and not turn it in because there potentially is some areas within habit forming and rewards. In ADHD, we see potential issues here with the white matter in this area, both here and in the frontal parietal. And that is specifically focused on intelligence, task switching, task adaptation, implementation, and flexibility of thought control. So this is where we see ADHD people struggling with switching tasks, right? Either over-focusing on a task and losing track of everything Mm -hmm. or being all over the place easily. Got it. In addition, according to Rubia, there's emerging evidence for abnormalities in orbital and ventromedial prefrontal and limbic areas that mediate motivation and emotion control, direct quote. Direct quote with the asterisk of, I also brought up the people who were specifically arguing that Rubia was not accurate, so we'll see. (laughs) But if we look at orbital and ventromedial prefrontal cortex from the neuroscience of depression, which we just did two months ago, that's the area that's literally just in front of your eyes, right? Like poke your fingers too far into your eyes, don't do that, and you'll find this area of your brain, basically. And this is the area that's very important for rewards and punishments, the left being reward and the right being punishment. In ADHD, what Rubia was seeing was that there were abnormalities in this area, specifically looking at evidence for potential lack of cortical thickness or delay in maturation of this area. There are other reasons why there could be potential lack of cortical thickness or delay in maturation of those areas. However, that you and I covered in season one in both the neuroscience of relationship and the neuroscience of mindfulness. How interesting. So when we're not dealing with secure attachment, which you and I discussed that with the change of how we're raising children Mm -hmm. into a two-parent household, now into a two-parent household while neither parent can ever be around when any child at any time requires four regulatory partners. Four, not two, not one, four. Right. 
we're seeing a lack of secure attachment, which means we're seeing less cortical thickness in certain areas. Whoa. Just another clear example of nature and nurture. Yes. And one more ways we're potentially taking a critical look to what is being argued for ADHD. Because one of the things that I think is very important is looking at not just what we see, but why we see it. Right? We shouldn't just be diagnosing on symptoms. Oh, I have these symptoms. Cool. You have like 17 diagnoses then according to the DSM, right? We need to be critical. And especially as clinicians, as medical providers, we need to be saying, why do we see this? Cool, cool. You're irritable. Irritable's in this book 47 times at least, right? Why are you irritable? Not just that you're irritable. Because if I diagnose you on the fact that you're irritable, I'm going to diagnose you with 47 diagnoses. Mm-hmm. With ADHD, we need to start looking at like, why are we seeing this? Not just that we're seeing it. If we really want to understand the neuroscience. And that's a tricky part that we don't have yet. All we can say is we see some abnormalities in potential ADHD patients. Also looking, of course, at the limbic area. I feel like we never talk about the brain without talking about that limbic system, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, because that's our middle child, and the middle child always wants attention. Why are you not paying attention to the middle child? And in this middle child, of course, we're talking about that click group. We hardly ever find one without the other because they all hang out together. (laughs) And that would be the super clicky group of your hippocampus, your brain's filing cabinet, your amygdala, your brain's alarm, and your hypothalamus, your brain's thermometer. Yep. To put it in very overgeneralized terms. (laughs) Uh, This has a pretty big role in the regulation of emotions. We've covered this a lot for that reason. And we're dealing specifically with memories and learning, and that gets very impacted by stress. We see reductions in this area all the time. In ADHD, we see a few meta-analysis showing volume reductions in this area, which again are also connected to things like depression, anxiety, trauma. Yep, so there's reductions here, and we're not sure why they are occurring or specifically for what diagnoses. Let's just say that. Yeah. But we see them with some people who have been diagnosed with ADHD, correctly or incorrectly, we're not sure. Oh, buddy. (laughs) This is just... Oh, I I understand the hot mess that is ADHD. We're really diving into it. (laughs) Yes. And of course, we're also going to look at dopamine because dopamine is going to be critical here. We know that from motivation. We know that from anxiety. We know that from depression. We've talked about dopamine. About dopamine is, is sliding into your DMs. It's Largely getting your body moving and it's telling you, do the thing to get the thing, right? Mm -hmm. As well as a a slew of other things. Dopamine does a lot. Slater and Tate have a study specifically focused on timing. And they're specifically citing Valera's study that there are likely impacts to dopamine transition. Dopamine impacts timing behavior. Nork did a study 10 years ago that shows that methylphenidate, a drug that increases levels of dopamine, reduces this timing deficit. Timing is something we covered in season one, The Neuroscience of Music. We covered a lot of it this season. Dopamine helps with musical rhythm. To quote Slater and Tate, dopamine supports neural communication within reward. We've covered that quite a lot. Motor and cognitive pathways that's involved within a wider range of function, including reward-based learning, motor coordination, and cognitive control. Yep. Everything (laughs) ADHD diagnosed people... Struggle with. Really struggle with. Yes. It helps keep us in sync with the world around us. Slater and Tate argue, we need to take a greater look at this. Because this has very promising results. So as critical as they are of quite a lot of the other research out there, citing specifically some of the articles we've covered, they're also saying it's partially because we might be looking at the wrong area because we're looking at the wrong symptoms. 
Not that people with ADHD may not have these symptoms, but we're not looking at why they have those symptoms. Absolutely. This has been such an interesting section of this podcast, especially compared to the last two episodes, because Mm -hmm. I feel like we recognize parts of the brain that light up when somebody has ADHD, but we're still just as clueless about whether or not it's ADHD or something else, because it's all too similar to other diagnoses that we know, uh, other symptoms that we recognize. And so maybe it's best we just take a quick break and kind of sit with this interesting information and we'll come back after the break and maybe talk a little bit more about the why these behaviors exist or why we see these behaviors and assume ADHD rather than looking at what else it could be. Sounds great. So in this next part of the podcast, we often dive into, after looking at the parts of the brain, we'll look at sort of the body and symptoms of the experience and then also behavior. But I feel like we've touched a lot on behavior. It's pretty obvious what it is for ADHD. And if there's anything else that we haven't mentioned or anything like that, please feel free to chime in. But I was thinking maybe for this next section, it could be fun to look at why we see these behaviors of ADHD and immediately diagnose that when it sounds like we're missing a lot of things that it could be instead? Yes. So some of this we've already hinted at a little bit, right? We're talking about something we haven't known about for that long, and we're talking about something that came of prevalence in the 80s, which is where we started to really increase the amount of standardized testing that we were doing in school. Mm -hmm. So we are seeing a a rapid increase of wanting children to behave a certain way that isn't necessarily appropriate developmentally. Right. We keep cutting things like recess and gym and all of the movement things that a child needs to completely develop, right? Because so much of what's been developed in the brain is more focused on moving the body (laughs) than it is higher cognitive levels of functioning, right? Mm -hmm. And yet we want small children to act like adults. Mm -hmm. We're also seeing, as we kind of hinted at, a change in how we're raising children in the last hundred years where we keep moving more and more into having less and less regulatory partners for any given child, which affects things like attachment, which affects the entire network of the brain. What what we don't know yet about attachment and what that sets us up for life is still concerning, mm-hmm. right? There's so much there about how well or not well your brain potentially works in harmony with itself. And we're not looking at that enough clinically, neurologically yet. We're getting a hint of it. Uh, as we're seeing so much about the power of mindfulness and how mindfulness looks the same on a brain scanner as does secure attachment. But Mm -hmm. we're in the beginning stages of that as well. We also haven't really looked at the multitudes of ways that trauma is impacting us. So for example, the amount of people who started to really feel 
like maybe I have ADHD that happened in the middle of the pandemic or shortly after the pandemic when all of us had experienced shared trauma. One of the things that we'll touch on so much more when we get into the neuroscience of trauma is trauma dramatically changes your attention because you can't. Your brain is going, I think I'm going to die. A bad thing happened to me and we could potentially die. That's very scary. I need to not be sitting for five hours reading a book on the history of economics. Sorry. Your brain is way more hyper-focused on keeping you alive, regardless of what you, the human, would like to do. Because again, trauma is really affecting that middle brain. That middle brain speaks louder than your prefrontal cortex. Your prefrontal cortex is struggling so hard to be listened to. We need to pay attention. We need to do our homework. We need to do our work. We need to do our taxes. And your middle brain is like, no, 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 no. We need to stay alive. Mm. So why we're seeing a prevalence of this is, is so complex. And again, I'm not saying that ADHD doesn't exist. I'm saying we don't know a lot about this yet for so many reasons. But what I do know is that insurance is a giant fan of medication. Insurance is not a giant fan of psychological testing. Insurance is not a giant fan of therapy. Therapy is incredibly expensive to insurance companies. It's why so many lobbyists have had to fight tooth and nail to try to get therapy covered at all. Therapy covered the same way anything else in medicine is covered, let alone testing, which is also super expensive, right? But medication is very cheap. How interesting. Considering all that we have learned in this episode about ADHD, about how there is so much we don't know about it because of how new it is, how overly experienced it is, and so heavily diagnosed, yet we feel like we're not sure what exactly we're diagnosing. What exactly do we do about it? Because normally here at this point, we'd talk about some takeaways that we do, but there's so much that we don't know. What does this mean? Is there anything to do? I think the best takeaway is validation. If you feel like you have symptoms of ADHD, you do. You very likely do. It doesn't mean that you have the diagnosis, but you can have the symptoms without the diagnosis. And honestly, even if you have the diagnosis, it doesn't necessarily mean you have ADHD. It doesn't reduce the validity of the symptoms. So if we think about it like that, if it doesn't matter if you have the diagnosis to be experiencing those symptoms, it also doesn't matter if you have the diagnosis to use some of the tools that do help support it. I think that's a key important thing is if it works for you, cool, use it, please. Actions to support yourself or someone who thinks that they have might have ADHD, I will state a disclaimer for this episode. This is not a diagnosis I have really treated. And I am cautious in treating it at all because it is so overdiagnosed. It's also oftenly treated with behavioral modifications, which were not something I did. Hmm. I can say in my time in clinical work, I have known one psychologist, one, 
who I very much trusted to actually diagnose this. Because this is very hard to diagnose. It looks like so much else, right? And she would say, with that particular provider, if she said you had it, you have it. And I can say this partially because she was so cautious and thorough in a way that not a lot of most clinicians are. That's not a critique as a clinician. I understand that, right? A lot of us are overworked and underpaid. And sometimes it's been 12 hours since we've been able to like go to the bathroom. So a lot of us struggle with being as cautious and as thorough because we don't have the time, energy, and money to the field. She Mm -hmm. was. And she also had a rarity amongst clinicians, something all of us need to do so much better than we do, which is that she would focus on why you have your symptoms, not just that you have them. Her strength was approaching something from the patient's perspective to really root herself in in the patient's mind and dive into what was going on and why. That's what made her so strong on this. So I have to say this because as clinicians, we all should be doing more of this when we're looking at something as complex and complicated as we now know ADHD is Mm -hmm. to diagnose. I worked with this clinician a lot. I think she's honestly one of the best psychological testers I've ever seen. And some of the patients I saw her work with did get ADHD diagnosis, but not all of them. ADHD is hard because it looks like so many other things, especially in children. We have to diagnose this with symptomology that occurred before the age of 12. Most 12-year-olds are not super great at explaining what's going on with them. And trauma and a small child look very, very similar. In fact, this is where I've seen it misdiagnosed the most. I remember a referral coming through of a child who was diagnosed with ADHD and ODD, which is oppositional defiant disorder. And in the footnotes, it said sexually assaulted. Huh, I wonder why they were having such a hard time paying attention and trusting adults enough to listen to them. Wow. Sometimes as clinicians, we look way too much at the symptoms and we stop seeing the patient for a patient. Yikes. And ADHD is hard. It is really, really hard because it does look like so many other things. And it's very hard for a small child to tell you what's going on and why. Or for a small child to understand what's going on and why. It's one of the reasons I liked doing pediatric work. Because it's a puzzle. It's so, so much harder. And it's so fascinating. But again, here's the thing. It doesn't actually matter so much what you have. As much as it does to use what works for you. What you have is a difficulty. It should be honored. It should be voiced. Anything that makes life harder than it should be, absolutely should be validated and honored. But it doesn't matter if we call it hyperkinetic disease or ADHD or something else entirely. ADHD is treated primarily in my limited personal experience by medication and behavioral modification tools. I'm cautious about medication because I've worked in so many environments where I saw adults who wanted kids medicated so much so they wouldn't be loud or active or distracted or wanting to do other things. You know, children they didn't want them to be children right as they should be so they wanted medication increased over and over again so some kindergartner would sit quietly in a corner all day that being said generally if medication works for you then that's a sign 
ADHD medication is highly regulated. Most of it, not all of it. Anything that is ADHD medication that is listed as a stimulant, we have one medication that's not a stimulant, is highly regulated because it's um, basically speed, for lack of better terminology. Wow. Like, so if speed slows you down, that's a sign that something isn't right neurologically. Absolutely. Which is one of the reasons that we still treat this by like, well, if medication works, there's something going on. And behavioral modifications, I've seen a lot of these recently, especially over the pandemic, over social media. The pandemic made us think we all had ADHD. None of us could focus. None of us could pay attention. A lot of us had all the energy and none of the energy all at the same time. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of trouble sleeping. There was a lot of trouble staying on task or oversleeping. Again, very interesting because uh, that means shared trauma, experience a pandemic, feeling an a reality of I could step outside and because of who I interacted with, I could die. That is a shared trauma. A shared trauma looks a lot like ADHD. Just putting that out there. Mm-hmm. But I did see a lot of helpful tips and tricks for managing ADHD. Ways to organize, ways to stay on task. If you see these and they work for you, fabulous. Great. Use them. You require no diagnosis to do this. If you see them and they work for your kids, Absolutely amazing. Use them. Use them a lot. You don't need a diagnosis to get benefits. In clinical work, actually, we do this as well. We'd have kids who didn't have a diagnosis for some disorder, and we'd use some other evidence-based practice, and it worked. Cool. Great. Use that, right? Again, clearly we don't know enough about ADHD to know even what's going on on a brain level, let alone a clinical level. But if it sticks, that's what matters. Not having a diagnosis doesn't make this any more or less valid for you. Use what works for you. Use what works for your children. Use what works for your significant other. Use what works for the people who matter in your life because we all need things from time to time to make life a lot more manageable. Thanks for listening to the Brain Blown Podcast. This podcast is created and produced by Lane and Sherris, with music by James Austin. To learn more about this episode, head over to brainblownpodcast.com for script notes, visuals, and any resources we mentioned. And hey, if you have any topics you're curious about or want to learn more on, we'd love to hear about it. Send us an email to info at brainblownpodcast.com or reach out via social media to connect.